From 2008 to 2018, China's non-financial corporate debt grew from just over $4.5 trillion to nearly $20 trillion. The IMF estimates that zombie firms constitute almost a tenth of all non-financial corporate debt in China in 2016. To learn more about what zombie firms are and what we can learn from them, we spoke with Tianlei Huang, a research analyst at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. So first, what are zombie firms and what do they tell us about the state of the Chinese economy? Well, different sources define zombie firms differently. Um, but the basic idea is that zombie firms are those companies that are chronically making losses but do not exit the market. And most of the time, their financing costs are below market rates. They're kept alive only by the continuous bank loans and government subsidies. What does it tell us about the Chinese economy? I think it, it tells us at least two things. One, there is a serious problem of resource misallocation in the Chinese economy. Private firms are, on average, more credit-worthy uh, and more efficient, but they're not getting enough uh, adequate financial resources that they, de they deserve and they need for their growth. Uh, two, I think there lacks a market-driven um, mechanism for companies like these zombie firms to exit the market in a well-functioning market, firms that keep underperforming on their assets and they're not able to repay their debts should simply easier go bankrupt or at least sell some of their assets to some more efficient firms. But in China, these mechanisms are not well-functioning. With that said, we do see that in recent years, um, both bankruptcy cases and mergers and acquisitions are on rise, and we hope this trend can continue. Um, so, so what percentage of, of state-owned enterprises in China at the moment would be classified as zombie firms then? Uh, we actually do not have an exact number to answer that question. Uh, but let me give you a rough uh, magnitude to show you how big the problem is. By the end of 2017, roughly 37% of all state firms across China were making losses. So that's about 70,000 firms. And this loss-making share has basically stayed unchanged since the great financial crisis. So this means that um, very likely a very large subset of these loss-making firms uh, were actually uh, making losses for quite a while already. So these are by definition zombie firms. We do not know how big this subset of loss-making firms is, um, but it might be 20%, 30% or even higher. But in any case, we are talking about tens of thousands here. So it's, so it's a huge problem. I should also have mentioned that um, uh, the loss-making share, the figure I just gave, uh, was from the Ministry of Finance in its yearly statistical yearbook. And it's likely uh, an underestimation because many firms uh, are only profitable after receiving a significant amount of government subsidies, which they have to report on their balance sheet. So the real number of loss-making firms uh, is likely much higher. If a lot of these firms are only surviving after state subsidies, how much money, give or take, on a year is, is going to prop up these zombie firms? It depends on how we uh, define the scope of money here. Um, many of these state firms not only receive subsidies directly from the government, um, they also have lower financing costs on their loans and on their corporate bonds which means that they usually pay lower interest rates um, compared with the private actors in the market. 
This, I think, is a kind of indirect subsidy, but it, it could be hard to measure. Also, some studies have found that um, state firms, on average, pay lower taxes than private firms. So this could be another form of subsidy. Um, we do not have an estimate on how much in total goes to the zombie firms every year, but I have seen some ex excellent research out there showing that all these direct and indirect uh, subsidies combined that the whole state sector, not only the zombie firms, but, uh, but also including those uh, viable state firms received last year was uh, approximately uh, over 1 trillion RMB. So that's, that's uh, around 1% of China's GDP. So it's huge. It's a huge amount of money. <laughs> Um, so as the economy starts to slow, we've seen a lot of reporting of, of you know, manufacturing indexes in, in contraction area and, and general bad news about the Chinese economy. Is this flow of money that you just mentioned more likely to dry up or is it just going to become more important to ensure the survival of, of these companies during a slowdown, kind of like the, the too big to fail system we saw in the, the financial crisis in the U.S.? Well, I think subsidies um, from the government to support certain advanced industries, especially those 10 industries listed in the Made in China 2025 initiative, uh, uh, is likely to persist. Um, and again, these, sub these subsidies can come in various for uh, forms, like I just mentioned. Um, but the presence of zombie firms in these industries could be uh, limited. The subsidies that go to support the zombie firms um, I think would likely, as you said, uh, dry up in, in the near term with the slowdown. I think there is a growing consensus that people now realize it makes less and less sense to subsidize those insolvent zombie firms that has uh, little hope to turn around. Um, these zombie firms are not worth um, restructuring uh, through M&As uh, or saving. Uh, 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 going uh, or just simply going through ba uh, bankruptcy reorganizations, they should be their assets should be uh, directly liquidated to repay their debt, which is uh, I think one of the reasons why we are seeing this surge uh, in bankruptcy uh, cases since last year. Since the government recognizes that letting zombie firms go bankrupt is maybe the best option in the long run. Um, could you describe what some of that short-term pain would look like in the Chinese economy if they did decide to do that? Sure. The first biggest um, short-term pain might be a massive layoff of workers uh, who work in the state-owned sector. Uh, recall that at the end of uh, 1990s, during the state-owned uh, sector reform led by Zhongji, uh, millions of workers were laid off or had to retire early. So the uh, state sector today is uh, much smaller in size in the Chinese economy, but it's still a major employer in many localities. If there is a surge in uh, enterprise bankruptcy cases uh, in these localities, the first thing that these places will have to deal with would be the layoff. I think this is one of the key reasons why China is only nibbling at the problem of zombie companies so that they can buy themselves more time to digest these issues uh, gradually. Uh, second, letting more zombie companies go bankrupt also means to uh, break the implicit state guarantee for state firm uh, liabilities, which means that some uh, state-owned firms might have to default on their bonds now. And uh, this so far has been quite limited, but we have to be prepared for that.
Third, for state-owned banks, they will have to recognize greater losses with an increase in bankruptcies. Some banks will have to write off more loans. Uh, some banks might even have to supplement their capital. And last, some local governments will lose a source of its fiscal revenue if there is a rapid increase in SOE bankruptcies in their jurisdictions. So they'll have to look for some alternatives. Okay, so I do want to kind of pivot to the, the, the role that zombie firms play in creating a, a conundrum for the Chinese government. So how does the state reconcile the conflicting goals it has of making state enterprises stronger while at the same time pursuing a deleveraging campaign to try to tackle debt? That's actually an interesting question. Uh, I think from the perspective of, of the Chinese state, it doesn't view these two goals uh, as conflicting. Uh, they actually think um, uh, M&As, which is one way to make the state sector bigger, uh, is a way to deleverage its economy. And by the way, the goal is actually to make the state sector uh, stronger, do better, and uh, grow bigger. So, uh, so far, we see that uh, it has successfully made the state sector bigger in size measured by assets, but not necessarily stronger. Uh, state firms are acquiring more and more companies, many of which are private, but their return on assets remain extremely low, which means their capacity to repay debt is also very low. With that said, uh, I think a firm being bigger does not necessarily uh, make it less efficient there could be some synergies created within the system that could boost the efficiency uh, and raise the profitability of the firm. So I think the key issue here is how to raise profitability of the state sector uh, while making the state sector bigger to achieve the government's goal. But of course, more uh, mergers and acquisitions alone will not solve the problem of the high leverage issue in the state sector. Other measures that directly address the high leverage problem are also needed, like uh, to remove the institutional barriers uh, for firms to file a, a, a bankruptcy petition with the legal system uh, or doing more uh, debt to equity swaps and so on. Okay, um, so you've led me straight to the next one. <laughs> um, so speaking of these deleveraging campaigns, uh, perhaps you could expand a little bit on that mechanism you just mentioned, which is debt-to-equity swaps. So what is a debt-to-equity swap, and how does it work? Um, sure, so a debt-to-equity swap would allow a creditor to swap its loans to equity in the debtor company. The idea is to let the creditor or some third-party organizations to uh, designated by the creditor to get involved in the management of the debtor company uh, and hopefully can turn around uh, the company's performance and made it capable uh, to repay its debt. A debt-to-equity swap can achieve two goals. For the creditor, it can increase the quality of its assets and potentially reduce the possibility of its assets uh, turning into bad loans. For the debtor, it can lower its leverage ratio. These sort of sound very nice, but it's actually very difficult to implement in practice. Um, in practice, it's usually a lengthy process for creditors and debtors to reach an agreement to eventually implement a swap program. A lot of bargaining on how to price the swap is involved in this process. That is why traditionally there have been more swaps that are signed than the ones that are actually implemented. Um, some programs on implementation has been made in the first half of this year, and I hope it's not 
due to some temporary government requirements, um, but actually driven by the market and will continue uh, in the future and help with the uh, deleveraging campaign. Okay, uh, maybe just to make it more concrete, I know reading some of the, the stuff that you've written before this interview, you had mentioned specifically the example in 1999 of the sort of one of the major debt for equity swaps between um, four of the major state-owned banks and then some major asset management companies in China. Could you maybe sort of explain what happened there to, to make the debt to equity swap idea sort of concrete? Oh, sure. So, so at the end of uh, 1990s, uh, during the state sector reform led by the then Premier Zhu Rongji, um, the, the, the asset quality uh, within the state-owned banking sector was really, really bad. And the state-owned enterprise sector has a huge, uh, has a serious leverage uh, problem. So in order to remove the bad loans from the balance sheets of uh, the state-owned banks, in order to uh, prevent them from uh, defaulting on their financial obligations to uh, millions of Chinese households, uh, the the state set up the four so-called asset management companies, and uh, these companies were, were created in par with the big four banks. Uh, so how how it worked was like this: so a an AMC, the asset management company under a specific big four bank, would requ- acquire uh, the, the the loans that the banks uh, would like to swap for equity in the target that that company. And the AMC will get involved in the management of this company and help uh, the company to repay its debt eventually. So how it works this time is similar uh, to the last round of uh, debt to equity swaps. But uh, but this time, who is actually implementing uh, these debt to equity swap uh, uh, is actually the, the, some uh, new newly created so-called financial asset investment companies, FAICs. But they basically function. Their, their function is basically the same as the AM, the four AMCs that were created uh, in the late 1990s. Okay, that does kind of elucidate things. Um, so I guess the the last thing is a bit of crystal ball gazing, which everyone likes to hear and no one likes to do. So so looking forward, I guess, what do you think is the most likely outcome in the near term? So say just the next few years. Um, is SOE debt something that the Chinese government will be likely to tackle or not, do you think? Well, I think SOE debt has to go down, and the Chinese leadership is well aware of the danger of this problem. Uh, it's taking various measures to make sure that they achieve what they have promised to their people. But I think the policymakers also recognize that they cannot achieve deleveraging overnight. Uh, it's rather a prolonged process that needs one to take a long view and have a strategy. Uh, dealing with financial risks is now considered to be one of the three critical battles uh, uh, for the state part, for the party and for the state, along with the other two battles against pollution and poverty. I guess what is more challenging for China probably in the near term is how to deleverage and reorganize its, its economy to lower the risks while making sure that all entities in the market, especially the non-state actors, could get adequate resources that they need for their growth. Um, the PBOC was under pressure for a long while uh, from both its domestic audience and uh, from uh, exter- from the external environment uh, amid this uh, global easing. 
and eventually lower the reserve requirement ratio last month, trying to stimulate the growth through policy easing. So I think what China will be doing in order to achieve the balance between the two is what we need to be carefully watching in the next couple of years. The China Business Review podcast is a production of the U.S.-China Business Council, and you can learn more about our work on our website, uschina.org. This podcast is also a companion to our digital magazine of the same name, and you can read more coverage about the most pressing business and economic issues in China at chinabusinessreview.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon.